0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast,
1: a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe.
1: And I'm Till Luka. Welcome to to the the Thinking Practitioner.
0: Practitioner. Hi, I'm Whitney Lowe, and this is episode two of the Thinking Practitioner podcast. We will be picking up and continuing the conversation that Till and I were having last time about our roots and influences. But first, we're going to get a little bit of information about today's opening sponsor. So tell who we got today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Whitney. This episode is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. When I was looking for a publisher for my own book, I was lucky enough to have two offers, one from a giant international media subsidiary and the other from Handspring. who They are a small publisher up in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm really glad at this point. A few years later, that I went with my gut and chose Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books, written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and as they say, all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness.
0: You know, it's a wonderful um, group of things, as you mentioned, that they've put together there to see that uh, specialization that they've done in the manual therapy world. And they've certainly done a great job of expanding these offerings for those of us in the movement and manual therapy arena. So there, you look over there, their author list reads like a who's who for many of the leading thinkers in our fields. So we thank them very much for the interest in keeping things going in our field. So to take a look at what they've got uh, offerings, head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com. And that's where you can browse that outstanding catalog. And then if you find the gems that you just have to have, use the code TTP. That's just like us, the thinking practitioner at checkout for a discount. That code is TTP at checkout for a discount. So picking up on that history from where we've kind of come from, we're moving ourselves through that timeline. Tell me what's what's happening now in your practice your life in terms of your professional life? How do you sort of break up the time? Because I know you're doing a lot of things with, you know, teaching and practice up everything. How does that broken up now?
1: Well, yeah, now these days I have a small practice. I see a few clients. I really enjoy it. It helps me stay honest. It helps me use and play with the ideas that I'm working with. But I'm lucky enough to spend a lot of time learning, researching, digging into stuff, trying to find ways to express it or bring it back out into writing or a course or something. So it's really, I just feel so privileged to be able to follow my interests. They do still align along this kind of body-mind direction. There were, you know, A few years ago, I had a big uh, placebo and contextual effects kick where I was diving into that. The last year and a half or so has been about inflammation and how we as hands-on therapists can work with inflammation. The, and the next topic is still to emerge, but the candidates include things like uh, motivation or mm-hmm. change. What What's the impulse to change that people come to a manual therapist with, and how can we encourage that as manual therapists? Essentially the question of how do we continue the effects of what we do off the table. That's yeah. a big puzzle. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, I kind of just... See myself diving into one of these questions as it emerges and making it the focus of my work. So, yeah, I travel a lot, travel once or twice a month, spend a month or two abroad each year to teach these things and uh, have a nice home life as well. Come back here to Boulder where I still live with my wife, and we have a lot of open space around us and do a lot of hiking and relaxing here at home.
0: It sounds like a wonderful balance.
1: Yeah. Pretty good. Can't yeah. complain.
0: right well you know those things are um i think per, particularly interesting I- interesting of how they kind of uh like i said bring us into the places that, where we were and oftentimes it's it's unintentional in, in terms of what takes us down these these various different paths That's of right. uh, of a lot of things you know uh i was doing quite a bit of clinical practice early on but also teaching in massage school and noticed that I was getting very interested in education, um, you know, as I, as I had noted earlier and, and a lot of the, uh, things really changed significantly for me when I started diving into the education question in a lot more depth, because I realized also at a little, uh, at a point later on that I was, while I was really passionate and fascinated in all kinds of things related to kinesiology and orthopedics and biomechanics, I was also really fascinated with education. And that's mm-hmm. become a a dominant piece for me, and uh, especially looking at uh, things like how people learn. You know, what are cognitive strategies that help people remember things? Because as a teacher in the classroom, I was getting frequently frustrated, and this you know has a lot to do with the context too, which is like you, I was teaching a lot of weekend workshops from the you know mid to late '90s on into the 2000s, and uh, a lot of the you know the sort of intensive process, come in, get a blistering amount of information over two days, and then blow off and leave and be gone. And, you mm. know, I would try to convey things that were relatively complex topics like clinical reasoning processes, how you figure out what's going on with somebody's pain and injury complaint. And that's not easy stuff to transmit in a short period of time. And and so for me, I started really looking into the whole process of how people learn and how we get things. In, and recognize that there's not a lot of emphasis in our field on educating educators or teaching people about education and how that actually colors what we do. And so Mm. that became another real um, serious passion of mine is looking at the educational process and how we learn things, because it, it really seems to me to be at the root of how we transmit the future knowledge base to uh, practitioners coming down the pike or how we're, how we're um, helping people learn about the, these things that they, they need to learn. And, and there's often a, an emphasis on trying to, to master or memorize a lot of information like for, you know, in entry-level training for your licensure test or for various different uh, exams or certification programs. There's always a, a crush of information you're trying to memorize, but how long does it really stick? You know, that's what I wanted, was really interested in. Is like, what is this? How is this going to translate onto something that you can do with your client in the treatment room two and a half years from now? After this and is it, all over.
1: The key phrase I heard you say was "clinical reasoning process." Yeah. Sounds like that's been your question: is how do I help people think things through, not just know information, but actually use what they know?
0: Absolutely, you know, yeah. Setting. yeah, and that's you know, I, this interesting that we we landed on this. Um, title for this podcast, because I have for years in the classroom been talking to people about you know, trying to get them to become the thinking practitioner, not somebody who follows routines or recipes or just do this thing five times to somebody's shoulder and everything will be better. But what if it doesn't? You know, What do you do? You have to become the thinking practitioner. You have to be that individual who can reason through different kinds of processes. So, you know, uh, again, kind of getting back to like how this is informing what we are doing right, right now, you know, tell me some more about how that work with uh, the Roth Institute has really informed what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, right. Well, it's like I said, I was there 20 years and that was my main gig. And as my thinking evolved and as the field evolved, uh, really began to get interested in how to bring the great work that was being done there out into the field as a whole. I really enjoyed working at the Rolf Institute and learned a ton, and as I evolved and as the field evolves, I really began to get interested in ways to bring what I was doing out into the field as a whole and to have conversations across disciplines and really understand how what we do affects the whole person. Let me put it that way. So I think even though I get really geeked out on something like the sacroiliac joint, which I hope to pick your brain about too, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious about how does this happen in a hands-on therapy session, in a context that involves the relationship, in a context that involves the client's, say, pain, or their interest in feeling better. How do we manage that, how do we catalyze that how do we help good things happen and uh, across disciplines, a lot of people that come to my classes in this country are massage therapists, there's a good number of rolfers, there's a good number of physical therapists and then when I go abroad it's all different uh, uh, professions but there is some universal processes there that uh, really involve listening, working, thinking that uh, allow good things to happen
0: yeah, so uh, I'm curious about this, when w- because you've done so much work with uh, international teaching with other um, fields and disciplines in other parts of the country. Um, how would you say, for example, the the predominant group of manual therapists that we're probably speaking to in this podcast, I would say is most likely massage therapists, and um, how would you say, for example, their preparation or their ty- their work approaches and their perspectives are there really key differences or things that you would notice of uh, those in other countries as a, uh, in comparison to what um, we, you see with the practitioners you work with here?
1: Well, that's that's a big question. You're asking both about international differences and professional differences between disciplines because I think you're right. I think a lot of massage therapists will tune in, but I think we'll probably get a lot of others too that don't necessarily identify as massage therapists. So I'm, yeah. I'm always trying to remind myself that as I speak and you know, you and I both write for say Massage and Body Work magazine, one of our sponsors here, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's always for me it's always looking for what's universal. And mm-hmm. I think there yeah. I think we tend to focus a lot on the distinctions. I know it's a big discussion within the field of structural integration, is like how are we not massage? Yeah. And uh-huh. both for to distinguish themselves as practitioners, but then also distinguish the work itself. But there's a whole lot of it that's pretty common and pretty universal and useful across that continuum that no are what kind of context you have or what the clients come in expecting. And probably the same is true internationally as well. I mean, there's huge cultural differences. I, you know, I'm about to go off to Norway and poland and then london and ireland on the same trip and those are all northwestern europe well i guess poland isn't northwestern portland's northeastern yeah. europe but culturally they're all over the map in terms of their learning styles education backgrounds the type of professions that end up coming to my trainings yeah so it's uh, it's a great exercise in trial and error really finding what people find useful what they what lights their fire what what makes their eyes open up and they come asking more questions about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Certainly from an educator's perspective, it seems like that would pose um, a lot of interesting challenges because, you know, you cannot rely on, on backgrounds being assumed to be one particular way or the, you know, what, what everybody's training even is uh, in there that they've gotten, you know, certain uh, basic concepts or ideas that you might assume to be foundational and, and, present with everybody may not necessarily be there so that certainly seems like something could be challenging
1: yes and no yes in that uh well here's an example for years i taught uh rolfers structural integration practitioners and massage therapists in this country and then i went to spain for some of my first international teaching back in the mid 90s i was teaching mostly physical therapists So here in this country, anything orthopedic was like a mind-blowing to the practitioners here, the massage therapists, the structural integrators. Mm -hmm. There, I'd go there and talk about something orthopedic. They're like, oh yeah, I know that. I know three studies that show that, argue that, and debate it. So it was about finding something that wasn't uh, orthopedic or wasn't information-based. In that case, it was more the interaction or the proprioceptive sensory aspects of the work. But it turns out that, and I I bet this is true for you too, just the nature of the work itself has so many dimensions to it that people find what's in it. If it's presented well, if it's interesting, if it's compelling, it's useful people find a dimension to it that makes it really interesting and useful no matter what their background is.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know those those kinds of classroom experiences I think provide rich opportunities too for um, the blending of understanding amongst these different professions because certainly one of the things that I I think we have a big challenge with across the whole healthcare landscape certainly in this country and I would assume it's probably similar in other countries as well is the problem of of interprofessional silos where Mm -hmm. we don't have a great deal of understanding for example what often happens in other perspectives from other people's uh, treatment methods or modalities or perspectives that are different from our own. Uh, And that's something we all could, yeah, certainly we all could benefit with uh, a great deal.
1: We all suffer from this we are special kind of thinking. Certainly I had that at the Rolf Institute, I had it at Esalen, I had it, I lived on a couple different islands at different points Uh in my life. It's like a kind of island mentality. There's the rest of the world and there's us. Right. And yeah. I'm more aware of how we are different than I am, how we're the same. And mm-hmm. once you get off the island a little bit, you realize, oh, geez, you know, we're all yeah. people here.
0: Right. It's that same sort of uh, thing of like, well, you can place your hand on the person's body and start doing something, and the cells don't know if you're doing. Rolling, or if you're doing you know myofascial release or if you're doing you know active engagement techniques or whatever it is they don't yeah. know or do they care yeah you know they' they have a, a physiological emotional psychological biopsychosocial reaction somehow or other to what we do and that's that's where the real end of it uh, really kind of comes down to I like it so yeah so tell me I another question I was going to ask and we talked about this a little bit you know, how, there's so many things that are changing in our field. Um, uh, and I'll say fields, plural, because you know lots of this is happening across the landscape in so many manual therapy disciplines. Um, as research comes about, we learn some some things that are maybe shifting and changing our perspectives oh, a yeah. bit. Tell me something that um, that maybe you used to think was really important uh, or really uh, a key piece, a key relevant factor that seems
1: less important
0: now than <laughs> what it used to. Yeah.
1: All right, that's that's a good one, Whitney. But first, let's do our halftime sponsor spot before I get into that one. This episode is sponsored by ABMP, the Associated Body Work and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership combines the insurance you need, the free CE you want, and the personalized service you deserve. They're featuring their dynamic new five minute muscles review app with muscle specific palpation and techniques videos and the award winning massage and body work where Whitney, you and I are both frequent contributors.
0: Yes, we certainly love working with ADMP. It's been a great organization and they're putting out very, very high quality uh, things for all kinds of uh, resources that professionals need. So. Certainly easy to see why our members uh, love ABMP. I've been one for many years and the uh, organization clearly is driven to offer loads of key benefits to their members and their primary focus is still as always on delivering exceptional opportunities and services to all their members. Listeners of our show who join ABMP as new members can save $24 on their membership by going to abmp.com forward slash thinking. So with ABMP, you can expect more. Okay, great. So before we were uh, thanking our sponsor there, I asked you about something you used to think was really important that seems less relevant now than it used to be. So what, what comes up for you there?
1: Yeah, there's so much. I mean, there's so much that really was the way I learned and you learned how to do it and you did it that way. And then it turns out that the way you do it is a protocol that's communicating some principles or some larger goals and it's you know the longer I mean everyone I think encounters this at some point if you practice long enough the way you do it becomes less important well let me put it this way what you do becomes less less important than the way you do it yeah so the uh, order I do the techniques in or whether I'm going down the back or up the front or whatever those have interesting principles behind them but they're they become less important as doctrines and more important as principles as time goes on
0: yeah Yeah. And I think oftentimes those may be um, initially transmitted and, as you noted, taught to us as sort of doctrine things because they're presented in a system. And this is what makes my system different from somebody else's system and why I get to, you know, trademark my system and charge more money for my system because we go from, you know, right to left instead of left to right or something like that. And, you know, those things often have an interesting narrative associated with them but often I think what we're kind of encountering is many of those narratives don't always um, sort of stand up to the test of time quite so well when we start digging into some of the deeper things below it so um, or, I think that's yeah uh,
1: or I could say for me it, they ma- they made less sense to me personally as I went on and I got more interested in getting down to the principles underneath them about when I got some great results what was happening there yeah and so yeah the the deeper I go, the less I believe in the original protocols or doctrines, yeah. and the more I get curious, and maybe even the less I know but the more I get curious about what is it that really catalyzes change Yeah, I should say that something I said just now is a debate I mean, there is a there is a tension in our field, but maybe in the world between doing it the right way and doing it the way that makes sense, between mm-hmm. absolutism and relativism, you could say yeah. That's just a fundamental split in the world right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm right. I'm articulating the relativist point of view, which yeah. isn't the only point of view, but it's the one that does seem to make sense for me. Yeah.
0: And I think it's important for us to recognize too that there are gray areas in that particular Perspective about looking at the way that you do things, because there are, in fact, reasons that you would not want to do certain things a certain way, because mm-hmm. it's actually dangerous. There you go. And and we have to recognize that. Okay, is this a time when the reason that we're being uh, encouraged to do something or not do something is really for? Um, a a serious um, health reason, or there yeah. is there just a pet theory that we're kind of uh, attracted to that makes you know makes us follow this particular protocol or, or process, um, and that's that's a challenging one for us to is to know, you know sometimes when we are in those different places of of why do we do the things that we do, and that's something that I've always been really trying to push a lot with the students as I work with them in class.
1: Yeah, uh, tell me because
0: the the way. The way that so many of our education programs are presented to students is usually instructor talks about something, instructor demonstrates something, students practice what instructor demonstrated the way that the instructor demonstrated it. So Hmm. do this the way I'm showing you here now and that will achieve X result, which then again back to that whole idea of the reasoning process it limits some of that reasoning a little bit because what I would like to you know what I frequently will do in the classroom and started doing this and really finding an interesting sort of it was an experiment I would do numerous times. For example, present a principle to the students a particular way. And then when we'd get to the practical application where they go back to their tables and they start practicing something, I'd ask them a question that would flip that whole thing into a t- completely different scenario that I didn't talk about. And ask them, mm-hmm. okay now what would you do here? And there was so many instances in which there was just this deer-in-the-headlights look because, well, I don't know, you didn't tell us that yet. Off the map. Right. And so, but that's clinical reality. I mean, that's what happens when you're in the clinic treatment room. It's not all going to look just like it did in the demonstration or in the way it looked in the textbook or anything like that. And that's why the whole reasoning process is so very important to have to think through some of these things. And I think we're, we're at a place now where it's there's a lot of people who are less comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. And some of this has to do with insecurity as an instructor or insecurity in their particular positions and feeling like they have to have all of the answers. And that's that's a challenging and somewhat dangerous place to be in because it leads you down this road of feeling like you have to say something and, and have an answer for all kinds of questions when there's a whole lot of questions that come up that I don't know the answer to. And, you know, <laughs> you know, back in the, I joke, students frequently. Back in the old days when we were in the classroom, you could get away with some line of bull for maybe a, a week or two after you said something before someone might find a, the inspiration to go look it up. But yeah. nowadays, you're going to get Googled within a matter of seconds. When People you are
1: said something in the back just... of the room tapping into their phones as you speak. Yeah, yeah checking it out. It's true. Yeah,
0: so don't to don't get into this thing of feeling like you have to answer everything and have an answer for everything because uh, uncertainty is, is not bad. It's It's actually something that leads us in good directions of questioning things a lot.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there's probably a stage to it as an educator. I kind of learned that, at least as a strategy. If I came in too early and says, okay, let's just work from principles or let me just show you something and you go try it. That worked for some people, but a lot of people really freaked them out if I didn't give them a protocol. Yeah. And eventually, after a couple years of fighting that, I go, okay, let me give you step-by-step Knowing that that's not the end purpose here, that's just a way to practice or learn or whatever. Let me give you a step-by-step, and that actually calms people down quite a bit. So when people are lost, that step-by-step helps, but the step-by-step isn't the point. It's just the, the framework. Yeah, and
0: that's the essential thing. It's like um, it's something that you have to use to get started, but mm-hmm. then you also have to know when to let go of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, um, you know, in some respects, it's like grammar. Okay, you have to learn basic grammar in order for us to communicate accurately Mm -hmm. but uh, once you start writing poetry grammar is probably going to go out the window there and so uh, to a a certain degree but if you don't know it to start with then you can't sort of just take a jumping off leap from it and and just be you know wild and unrestricted in the things that you're doing there. I'm
1: looking at it up here Picasso his quote I'm just gonna. I can't find. It. I'm gonna make it up. He said something like, uh, "Learn the rules like a pro, uh-huh. so that you can break them like an artist."
0: I like that. Yeah,
1: something like yeah. that. We gotta know. We gotta know the yeah. protocols. We gotta know the rules for sure. The contraindications. The dangers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And we we have to know how to notice when we're getting lost. Or stuck in each one of those also. you know, yeah. notice when we're getting stuck in the rules and the guidelines and the foundation principles. or also notice when we're getting stuck in um, just abandoning them all willy-nilly altogether and jumping into something because uh, somebody said this esoteric idea and you thought it sounded cool. and so now that's the way everything is. So uh, yeah, I think it's really important that we we recognize we be able to recognize when we're ourselves getting pulled into those vortexes. Mm-hmm. For vortices
1: mm-hmm. that's good well what are what are you what are you working on these days, or what's capturing your interest to your passions the most would you say
0: yeah, right now, uh, at least at the moment the uh, the big project on my plate is a revision of my book on orthopedic assessment, which has been out since uh two thousand and six, so it's it's a long time coming with another second edition of this book. Most wow. of the book turnaround times are much shorter that gets us into a whole different topic of publishers forcing edition updates. which <laughs> We'll get that. And uh, This one I didn't have to because I self-published the book, but um, this new edition of the book is something where I'm really trying to bring in educational principles um, because the world of publishing has changed so dramatically now and when we talk about classroom learning aids um, you know, a textbook is good for certain types of things and not so good on other types of things. And I've gotten uh, very much enmeshed in the world of online education and looking at ways to help people get outside of the traditional learning formats and, and experimenting a great deal in that whole area ever since the early 2000s. So this new book is going to be a uh, an interesting sort of multimedia workbook is the way I'm sort of describing it. So it's going to be much more than, you know, most textbooks have like a, a website bolted onto the textbook that is in addition to what the textbook is. Mm. Uh, but the textbook can live independently. Um, this one's going to be a little bit different because it will not really be independent of the online components. There's going to be a lot of stuff that just will simply not be in the book that it's online because certain things are better to be transmitted in a multimedia format like showing technique things through video is way better than a still picture in the book or when we talk about clinical reasoning activities, getting people to, to understand recognizing patterns that might indicate a particular shoulder pathology, you can have them go through those activities and get uh, you know experimental processes of testing their reasoning processes and getting immediate feedback of like, yes, this was accurate, no, that wasn't quite so accurate when you did this, and that's how you actually shape and form those learning processes more because you can't, teach clinical reasoning really effectively with textbook written text only Uh, and it's something that really needs to be taught uh, much more um, extensively I think by uh, practice involved practice and uh, error. Error is a crucial part of learning those kinds of things. It's like well if this isn't right what would be and why do you do what you do or why did you figure that out? Why did that a group of signs or symptoms point you in the direction of thinking something like this was present. So um, that's really where I'm enmeshed right now is, is in this book revision and uh, continuing to push the envelope with, with online education and trying to bring that into the manual therapy world a bit.
1: You've always been pushing that envelope. I know you're looking for ways to make it as useful and real as possible. So that sounds like a really fascinating uh, revision, you called it, but you're talking about a higher level integration between the online world and the text world, and yeah. you get that clinical reasoning piece.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I got into the whole online education thing back in the late '90s and early 2000s, before it was really kind of a big bubble that it's turned into, simply because I was curious about how we could do a better job of teaching clinical reasoning processes than than I was doing in the classroom weekend workshop format. And yeah studied a lot of what was happening in the world of online education and that took me down a huge different rabbit hole of of uh, multimedia learning theory and, and instructional design and yes. um, all kinds of things that have to do with what you're doing when you're creating multimedia learning experiences and really thought that uh, you know there was a tremendous amount of potential for bringing this into the massage world for teaching all kinds of stuff not necessarily as much about teaching people technique but teaching lots and lots of the cognitive elements of what we're doing and the critical thinking elements of what we're doing. And that's what I would love to see happening. If I can have one bucket list professional wish you know, before I'm hanging up my cleats is that I would like to see more of that um, high quality potential educational uh, versatility Mm -hmm. making its way into our training programs. And we're still quite a long way from there. But um, that's a lot of what I'm enmeshed in right now. It's trying to make that happen.
1: That's great. And there is so much potential there for the online world. And I I think you and I talked about this a while back. I got inspired also way back. It was like the year 1999. I taught my first teleconference course. Uh And we taught, it's been the same question all these years. It's like, how do we integrate that into a full-scale, full-spectrum learning uh, experience? And no, you can't duplicate the in-person experience, but you've really led the pack, and you, I know you have a tremendous number of offerings there. And uh, this this bucket list item you have of really seeing that take shape, I'm behind, I'm behind you. I'm with you. Good. It's All right. Well,
0: we'll we'll see if it happens. It's a long. Uh, there are lots of days when it feels like I'm pulling a freight train up a hill, but you know, that's how those things happen. Yeah, they happen little bits at a time. They happen little bits at a time. Yeah. So what what are you? What's on your plate nowadays that you're focusing on?
1: Well, I mentioned uh, the question of motivation and change off the table. That's looming on my horizon. And in the short term, it's just getting our new website finished. We have a bunch of online courses there, and there's a whole uh, directory and CE tracking system there that is just about getting finished. We have a couple of great retreats coming up that I'm getting ready for. But yeah, I think in terms of topics, it really, we'll see. We'll see what it really grabs my interest. I think it is something around the question of change. How do we really catalyze deep change in our clients? Yeah. And then for me, yeah, as an educator, how do I catalyze or invite or inspire deep change in the students that come to our trainings or do our online things? Mm-hmm. That's the biggest one for me. And it's, it, it's working at the next level with the people already in our program, And there's always people coming in, so how to engage them in a way that's most meaningful, how to keep what we're teaching up to date and interesting. And uh, honestly, I mean, if I had to make it off the top of my head, our mission statement is basically to blow people's minds.
0: Yeah, there you go. I like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so Uh just look, continuing that process of blowing my own mind and looking to how to do that for the people that come to us for trainings. Yeah. That's the challenge that's facing me personally. Yeah.
0: Yes, indeed. So we will continue to explore lots of those topics uh, here on the podcast, and um, I think we'll maybe dish some of those up here in the next uh, couple episodes as we're coming down to to take a look at them. So,
1: me too, Whitney. Next time we're talking about the challenges and opportunities we see facing our field. That's uh, at least a part one of that conversation. So be sure to check that out. Before I go, I should invite the listeners to stop by the podcast site for show notes. CE credit updates and extras, that's www.thethinkingpractitioner.com. Or those uh, notes, etc., are on each of our own sites, my site, advancedtraining.com, advanced trainings.com. And they're on your site too, Whitney. What's yeah, you are across? indeed.
0: Yes. And we are over at the academyofclinicalmassage.com. And we would certainly love to hear your thoughts or questions uh, sent to us to give us some input about what you like about the show, things you'd like to see us cover or anything like that, or, you know, what you don't like, we'll hear that as well. Um, you can send those notes to us at info at or through our social media channels. Um, I'm on uh, Facebook at um, the Academy of Clinical Massage and also through my name, Whitney Lowe and Till, I believe you're over there also at Till Luca, is that right?
1: That's it. And please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and tell a friend. Thanks everybody, see you next time. Okay, we'll see you then.